Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. First Peter 1, verses 1 through 2. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of God. Friends, I am thrilled to be standing before you and talking to you, preaching to you about this, this good word that we see here in First Peter. We are starting what uh, seems like it will be about a four-month journey into the book of First Peter. Now, that could change. We haven't mapped out, but you never know what God's going to do. We're going to be open to his leading uh, with regard to that. But about the next four months, we spend time in First Peter. Now, this is uh, exciting in a number of ways for a number of reasons. One of them is, you know, we've, we've preached through a lot of the books of the Bible, a number of them, uh, probably not a majority yet, but all those letters that have so far been letters written by Paul. Uh, we've gone through uh, Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians and Philemon, and so we have more of that to cover, but this is the first kind of step into uh, a long-term look at a Petrine epistle of a letter written by Peter or someone other than Paul. Now this text is, uh, has meant a lot to me over the course of my, of my life. I remember, uh, meditating on this in, in college. Um, I remember thinking about this before getting married. I remember, uh, meditating on verses from this, uh, from this letter numerous times over the course of my Christian life. And God has used this book, uh, to transform my thinking about, about marriage, about spiritual beings, about what it looks like to, to live and to, suffer for Jesus, what it looks like to live as a Christian. And so I am thrilled to invite us into this journey. But I'll tell you the truth that I've, in all my time in this book, I've never been more excited about the riches of this letter than I've been, as our pastoral team has, has thought about and planned how we're going to preach this. Because I believe this is a letter that we that we desperately need, that Christ Community Church in 2021 desperately needs. It's a letter that will help us lean steadfastly into the arms of Jesus with joy in the midst of difficulty. It's a letter that will teach us the joy of hope in the midst of suffering. It will teach us how to submit to one another, knowing that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession together. Peter is writing to people who because of their commitment to Jesus, feel out of place with their family and friends. I know a number of you feel that way right now today. He's writing to Christians who are treated badly at work and who are trying to figure out how to respond to injustice with holiness. He's writing to wives who are trying to live faithfully when their home isn't exactly spiritually safe. He's writing to husbands who are trying to love their wives, but struggling with thinking they have more to offer than their wives. He's writing to church folks who are trying hard not to return to old habits or addictions that they had before they knew the Lord. He's writing to pastors and 
aspiring leaders and friends who are trying to be faithful in a world that seems increasingly hostile to the gospel. This is a letter that we need. We need to hear the words of Jesus through the Apostle Peter. So today we're going to start by looking just at the greeting of Peter's letter. And what this is going to do is awaken us, alert us, to some of the main themes that will be found throughout the rest of the letter. Now, two of the most important words in... Let me ask for it. Are you ready? Are you good? Okay. I want to make sure. I don't want to start this engine before, we, before we're all on board. Let's, let's get to it. Two of the most important words that we find in this text are found right in the middle of verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. There they are. Everyone say, elect exiles. What does it mean to be elect exile? That's what we're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about today, is elect exiles. Now, this pair of words, what we might call an oxymoron, if you've been out of school for a little while, an oxymoron is a pair of contradictory words that are placed next to one another, and they form a phrase that should make sense. The living dead, a required Elective. Why is it an oxymoron? Because if I'm required to take a course, how can I choose it? But they go together and they make sense. Elect exiles form what we might call an oxymoron. Elect simply means chosen. If you think about an election, the people choose someone to represent them. You think about picking teams for a pickup game. The captain elects people to be on their team. But the other word, exile, has somewhat of a contradictory meaning. We often think of exiles as those who have been cast off, who have been disregarded, who don't have a place. We don't think of them as being chosen or elect. So when Peter calls these people elect exiles, he's writing to elect exiles, he's saying something about their identity as the people of God. So what does he mean by elect exile? I want to start with the word elect. When Peter says to those who are elect, he's using a term that throughout the New Testament we hear when they're just talking about the church, talking about those who are in Christ, talking about those who have turned from their sins to trust Jesus. But he's using a word that focuses on one particular aspect of what it means to follow Jesus. Every human being who has ever been conceived was created in the image of God. Amen? They were created by God to reflect His glory, His goodness, His beauty. But sin marred the image of God in all of us. Sin blinds us to who God is and who we were meant to be. Sin makes us think that God doesn't love us. Sin makes us think that self-preservation is the only way to true happiness. Sin makes us focus on ourselves instead of focusing on the one for whom we were created, who is God. Sin makes us think that our way is the best way. Our thinking is the best thinking, the right thinking. In other words, sin distorts the image of God to us. We don't see God clearly. But sin also distorts the image of God in us. Rather than reflecting God's glory, we reflect distorted pictures of who he is and what he's like. We don't see people with the compassion that God does. We don't treat people with the dignity they deserve. We don't honor people as people made in God's image. And we can't because sin runs deep. 
This is why Romans says, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. This is how the Bible describes all of us without Jesus. No one is seeking God. But the good news of the gospel is that when we weren't seeking God, God sought us. God saw us in our sin. And he sent his son Jesus to demonstrate the love of God by dying on the cross for our sins. Jesus came to rescue us from the penalty, from the power, and from the presence of sin. So that we could enjoy a relationship with God as we were created to do. Did we choose God? No. Could we choose God? No. But God is a gracious God, a loving God, a redeeming God, and he chose us. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 1. He, being God, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Jesus says it this way in John 15, talking to his disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Peter says it this way to those who are elect exiles. Skipping down to verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Let's talk about that verse 2 for a second. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This doesn't just mean that he knew about your salvation. God the Father planned your salvation. In the sanctification of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit set you apart for God and made you holy before God. God did that. For obedience to Jesus Christ, this obedience probably refers to your response to the gospel. You trusted Christ for salvation and for sprinkling with his blood. You were cleansed from the guilt of your sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit planned your salvation, set you apart for God, gave you grace to respond to the gospel, and cleansed you from the guilt of your sins. He set you apart as his elect. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins and rose again, you can know that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit set you apart as his elect. And if you're in this sanctuary today and you haven't trusted in Jesus as the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins to redeem you and to reconcile you with God, just believe that you can't earn God's salvation, that Jesus did it all. In your heart, where you are, just say yes to Jesus. And you'll be called by the same word. Salvation is a gift from God. It's a gift of God. And Peter calls his readers elect to remind them of their identity. They are known. They are seen. They are remembered. They are chosen. They are called, they are sanctified, they are cleansed by God, they are his people. Now this truth needs to sink down deep into our hearts, friends. If God has thought about you and has, has 
chosen you to be a recipient of His grace. How should that affect the way you pray? How does that affect the way you search the Scriptures? How does that affect the way we receive rebuke? God loves me. He sent His Son to die for me. He pursued me. If He would go all the way to the cross for me, what would He not give me to show me that He loves me? God is for you. He has not given up on you. He won't. We are His people. Which is why the next word may sound strange to us. Peter doesn't just call his readers elect, he also calls them exiles. Now an exile is someone who has left their homeland to dwell in another country or another land. Now in English, the word exile often carries the connotation that someone was forced out of their country as a punishment for some crime like treason. But in Greek... The word doesn't have that same connotation. It can mean someone who is exiled for being punished, but it simply means a foreigner. Someone who lives here now, but their home is somewhere else. They're a temporary resident. You might think of them as a displaced person. And Peter is saying that the Christians to whom he writes are exiles. They are displaced. They are away from their home. They're living in a foreign land. Now, what's strange about this is that the people whom he's writing are not displaced peoples. Some believe that some of the people Peter's writing to may be some of the same people who heard him preach at Pentecost. If you go back to Acts 2, you look at the list of where his listeners were from, and you compare that to this list, to Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Some of those places overlap. Some of these folks heard the gospel in Jerusalem and went back home when Peter was stoned in Acts 7. Stephen was stoned in Acts 7. A lot of these folks are back home. They're not displaced. They're actually in the place where they were from. They're not away from their home, not living in a foreign land. So what is Peter talking about? When God chooses a people for himself, they become exiles. Because when God chooses a people, he calls them out And he sows them in. He calls them out and he sows them in. He sets them apart for himself. And he places them where his glory can be fully seen. I want to walk back a little bit into your Old Testament. Remember the story of Abram. Some of you might know the story of Abram. He was a man who... Uh, lived where his father lived. And, and then God called him in Genesis chapter 12 and he said, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land I will show you. And in verse 4, it says, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. Now when God chose Abram, he, did, he called him out from his home. He called him to leave his relatives and his father's family and go to another land, one that he had not seen before, one that he was not familiar with. And if we keep reading, it's a land that is inhabited by another people. It's the land of Canaan. He calls Abram to be his people, and he settles them in a land that doesn't belong to him. And he says, I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations of the world. He calls them out, and he sows them in. 
in Leviticus chapter 20, when Moses is relaying the law of God to the people, God is, has rescued his people from Egypt, where they spent 400 years. And he, he brings them to his, his promised land. And here's what he said. He said, but I have said to you, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 24 and 26, you shall inherit the land. In other words, it's your possession. It's for you. And I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall be holy to me, for I, am the, I the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. He calls them out, and he shows them in a land that's not their own. God tells his people, he's sending them into a land that's not theirs, and he's separating them from the peoples to make them his own. What are we saying? We're saying that you can trace the story of the people of God and see it as a story of exile. God calls the people for himself. He settles them in a foreign land where they have to trust him. And as they trust him, they become a sign of those in the land that God is with them. Why does he settle them in a foreign land? I think there's two reasons, and these are really important. One, he does this because he wants his people to believe that his presence, not a geographic location, is their true home. The presence of God is where they find their home, not in the specific place they find themselves. But second, he does this because he wants all the nations of the world to believe that his presence, not a geographic location, is their true home. God made us for himself. In his presence is fullness of joy. Joy doesn't come from a location. Joy comes from God. And if your joy comes from God, get this, then every location becomes a place where God's joy can be manifest in the peace of God. This is the message of Psalm 84. A few months ago, Pastor John Mark preached on this psalm. And it starts off by saying, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for you. Faints for the courts of the Lord. The psalmist longs to be in the presence of the Lord. And then a few verses later, in verse 5, he pins these words. He says, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Listen, for those who trust in the Lord, the kingdom of, of God is within them. In their hearts, they long for the kingdom of God. They long to be in God's presence. They are satisfied only in the realization that their true home is in God. But that doesn't make them pessimistic escapists who say, the world is going to hell, good riddance. Because in the next verse it says, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. Because God's presence is in his people's hearts, their lives leave an oasis in every desert they encounter. Their lives leave peace even in the most chaotic places of the world. Their lives leave light in the darkest corners of their communities. When your joy comes from God, every location becomes a place where God's joy can be manifest in the peace of God. Every location. Now let me give one caveat. 
Don't be surprised when home doesn't feel like home. Don't be surprised when the peace of God comes slowly. Don't give up when you suffer for trying to bring peace and trying to do good. Remember the words of Hebrews 13. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We remember that they crucified Jesus. Jesus was in exile. It doesn't mean we stop sowing peace. In fact, the motivation for sowing peace is that we know that peace is coming. When we sow peace, it's a sign to the world that God's peace is on the way. This is the calling of every disciple of Jesus. When Jesus calls us, elects us to follow him, he invites us into the exile life. He calls us to leave our entire way of life, our nets, our boats, Our houses, our brothers, our sisters, our friends, our mothers, our fathers, our houses, our lands, our homes. In order to be with him. In order to know him. In order to find our joy in him. In order to be satisfied in him. But then he might just call us. To pick up that same net with a transformed way of thinking, with a transformed heart, with a transformed way of being. He might call us to get back in the boat with a new motivation and a new perspective and a new goal. He might call us to move to another land or he might call us to move deeper into our current land with an eye toward the lasting city, with an eye toward the salvation that God has promised to accomplish in the last days. Now, there's an important word in our text we need to attend to. It's the word dispersion. You see it there in verse 1? To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, in Peter's day, that word would have been used to refer to the Jewish diaspora, Jews who had left their homeland and were living in a variety of different places, but they were still carrying on their Jewish traditions. Peter takes that word and uses it for the church. Now, the word dispersion or diaspora means sown abroad. Sown abroad. Sown means scattered, but it means scattered by the hand of a gardener or a farmer who deliberately put seed in the ground. Deliberately. These elect exiles are scattered abroad by the hand of God. God has sown them where they are. He has planted them where they are. It isn't an accident that they are where they are, even though they may be where they didn't think they ought to be. As one Old Testament scholar writes, God turns exile into dispersion. You may think life put you where you are. But God was at work in the midst of your life to bring you to the place where you are. Some of you may be here and you need to realize that God 
has put you where you are out of grace. Where you are is the gift of grace. Now, some of you are in some really difficult places. But God's grace can reach you even there. Can we do a case study real quick? I guess so. I'm preaching. The first few words of this text say Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I want to talk about Peter. Peter was very familiar with the exile life. Years before he penned this letter, Jesus personally called Peter to follow him. Now, at that time, Peter was known as Simon, son of Jonah, and he worked as a fisherman with his brother Andrew. Jesus came to his town and found Simon, found him. He called Simon to leave his nets and to follow him. And in calling Simon to follow him, Jesus made his home with Simon. He always does that. He always does that. Always does that. He always makes his home with people he calls. Listen to this in John 14, 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He loves making home with people. He made home with Simon. He stayed with him in his home. He healed his mother-in-law of a sickness. He taught him about the kingdom of God and showed him signs that the kingdom of God was near. Then Jesus went up on a mountain and prayed and he called Simon to be an apostle. The word apostle simply means one who is sent. And he sent Simon out to preach. And he gave Simon authority to cast out demons. Simon went out into the villages telling everybody he could about the kingdom of God. He saw demons submit in the name of Jesus. And he came back and told Jesus about it. And Jesus kept on teaching him. He watched Jesus feed 5,000 families with a few loaves of bread and a couple fish. And then that night, he saw Jesus walk on the water in the middle of a storm. And Jesus even called Simon to come out on the water, and he did, until he didn't. But Jesus held him up. Jesus asked Simon one day who he thought he was. And Simon answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Then Jesus changed Simon's name. He changed his name to Peter, which means rock. And Jesus told him that he would build his church on that confession. Then Jesus took Peter up on a high mountain. And Peter saw the glory of God in Jesus Christ. He had never seen it before, ever. A few days before Jesus was arrested, Jesus, for the night he was arrested, he washed Peter's feet. He told him to wash his brother's feet. Jesus, Peter said, wash all of me. Lord, clean all of me. He said, you're already clean. I'm giving you an example to follow. Jesus even invited Peter to pray with him on the light, on the night that he was betrayed. And what did Peter do? He fell asleep. The guards came to arrest Jesus, and Peter cut off one of the guards' ears, and Jesus said, Peter, listen, that is not the way the kingdom comes. Peter followed the mob, and he came to the courtyard. And when he was asked if he had been with Jesus, Peter denied ever knowing Jesus. He called curses upon himself. Three times he denied Jesus in Jesus' most vulnerable moment. He went out and wept. A couple days later, he gets a message that the tomb where they laid Jesus is empty. 
So he runs as fast as he can to get to the tomb. And he gets there, and there's nothing there. A few days later, he's praying. And later on, he's praying. Jesus shows up. And then a few days later, Peter's back out fishing. And Jesus shows up, invites him to breakfast. And he asks Peter a question. Peter had denied Jesus three times. And Jesus said three times, Peter, do you love me? How do you answer that question? Church, if we're honest with ourselves, how do we answer that question? When my life doesn't always reflect the love that I have for Jesus, how do I answer that question? When I know myself, and I know my struggles, and I know how far I am from where he wants me to be, how do I answer that question? And Peter answers it as best I think he can. He said, Lord, the first good answer. Lord. He says, you know that I love you. My love is not based on my knowledge and my love. Because if I look at my love, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But you're Lord. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. I've got a good purpose for you, Peter. You have not disqualified yourself. You're still in the game. But your mind is transformed and your heart is transformed and your being is transformed. So now you can shepherd my people. When Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, those words are loaded. Because Peter didn't deserve to be here. He deserves to be Simon the fisherman. He has no claim on apostleship. But it's not up to him. Peter knows something about how far God's grace can reach. So he tells these elect exiles. He expresses a benediction through his written words. He says, if you want to live in a land that is hostile, if you want to live as my called chosen people, if you want to live for faithful in faithfulness wherever you are, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's my prayer. Be strengthened in the grace that's in Jesus. You didn't deserve where you are. But his grace is sufficient for you. You bring chaos into a lot of places that God wants peace. But may his peace continue to be multiplied to you. You can't give it if you don't have it. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's a prayer that Jesus loves to answer. Because he is a gracious God. 
And it's his peace that we're bringing. Church, I'm excited to walk into this, this book. Because what, what God is calling us to is to be elect exiles. In whom the grace of God and the peace of God abounds for his glory. And Peter's going to give us some insight on how do you do that. He's going to show us that being an exile people is to be a, a holy people, a set-apart people, a people who don't act like the world acts. He's going to show us that being an exile people is a people who actualize the kingdom of God in every kingdom of man. We can submit to any emperor and still be salt and light. He's going to show us that an exile people lives wise as serpents and innocent as doves. They might suffer, but they suffer for doing good, not for doing evil. He's going to show us that being an exile people is to be a vulnerable people whose only hope is in the God who will himself strengthen and establish us. He's going to show us what it means to be an exiled people. As we close our time today, I want to leave us with some words from an ancient text from the early church fathers. It's entitled An Epistle to Diognetus. And here's what this letter says when it's describing what Christians are like. It's for Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe. In other words, you can't tell if they're Christian just because they listen to salsa or hip-hop or R&B. Because they speak Spanish or Italian or Arabic. Because they eat meat or eat vegetables. Because they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. But, inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct. In other words, they wear what everybody else wears. They eat what everybody else eats. They do what everybody else does. But in the midst of that, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners, as, as citizens, they share in all things with others, yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country. And every land of their birth as a land of strangers. As disciples of Jesus, we are called to live an exile life. Never fully at home, but at home everywhere, because the kingdom of God is within us. Wherever we go, we sow peace. Wherever we go, we sow righteousness. Wherever we go, if someone else knows the living God, they are family. And the hospitality of God is abundant with us. 
Wherever they go, there's grace. Wherever they go, there's peace. This is the exile life. It's the life that God is calling us to. And life we're going to walk into. I'm excited about this journey. I'm excited to make it with you. I'm excited to make it together. Because that's what God's called us to do. Come on, we bow our heads and pray. Our Father, I, I thank you so much for your good purposes that you have called us to be here now. Not for our name's sake, but for the sake of the name of Jesus. I pray, God, that you would teach us in this season what it looks like to live as people who are chosen of God, who are known by God and redeemed by God, and yet who live as foreigners in a homeland. Teach us God to live with joy, with grace, sowing peace and righteousness in the places where we go. As we come now to the Lord's table, Lord, we, we know that Jesus suffered outside the gate so we can be brought in to be near to you. Thank you, Lord, for the foretaste of heaven. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.